jazz to me is a state of life being a state of existence. You can't learn it in uh, colleges or universities. It's something that you never experience. Welcome to Antipod, a radical geography podcast and sound collective. I'm Akira Drake Rodriguez. And I'm Brian Williams. We'll be your hosts for this episode, the first of a two-part series dedicated to the life and work of the late Clyde Woods. This episode is the first of two that draw on our recordings of a pair of Author Meets Critics panels organized to honor Clyde Woods' posthumously published work, Development Drowned and Reborn. The Blues and Bourbon Restorations in Post-Katrina, New Orleans. This work was edited by Jordan Camp of Barnard College and Lara Polito of the University of Oregon. In this episode, we'll focus on the enduring power and brilliance of Clyde Woods' work. The clips we're going to share with you are from a conversation among activists and scholars who assembled on a rainy April evening at the Community Book Center, or CBC, in New Orleans' 7th Ward. Since our theme for this season of Antipod is Black Geographies, we find it fitting to start with the work of Clyde Woods. Dr. Woods was a scholar of Black Geographies who wrote widely on the political, economic, and cultural theories of the Black diaspora. Dr. Woods received his PhD in urban and regional planning from UCLA. He taught at Penn State, the University of Maryland, and the University of California in Santa Barbara. Woods wrote extensively about the Mississippi Delta region of the United States. This body of work includes Development Arrested, the Blazing Plantation Power in the Mississippi Delta, Development Drowned and Reborn, and a special issue of American Quarterly. He also wrote on Black geographies more broadly, including a book that he co-edited with Queen's University professor Catherine McHittrick entitled Black Geographies and the Politics of Place. Before his untimely death in 2011, Woods had begun writing on Black Los Angeles and California and on Black farmers. He was also broadening his work in environmental justice and racism. Woods was a phenomenal mentor and an inspiration to many. His influence is still felt throughout the academy and in activist communities. The voices you'll hear in this episode witness the intense love and admiration that Dr. Woods' peers and students had for him. The clips you'll hear in this episode were recorded at the Community Book Center, which has been a gathering place and hangout for members of New Orleans Black communities for over 35 years. The Community Book Center, or CBC, is also a space of continuity for New Orleans residents pre- and post-Katrina. The panel at the CBC reflected the centrality of community to Woods' work. The participants in the discussion were former Woods student and activist poet Sonny Patterson, Khalil Shaid, who is a senior policy advocate at the National Resource Defense Council, Anna Brand, an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, Shana Griffin from Jane's Place, New Orleans' first community land trust, Sue Mobley, who at the time of the panel was the programs manager for the Albert and Tina Small Center for Collaborative Design at Tulane University, and Jordan Camp, another former student of Clyde Woods, who, along with Laura Polito, edited Development Drowned and Reborn. Woods' first book, Development Arrested, which was the precursor to Development Drowned and Reborn, developed the concept of blues epistemology. This concept of blues epistemology means centering the blues, the culture, and the people of the Delta region as the primary source of knowing the Southern, and thus the United States, political economy. Instead of relying on narratives and histories produced by white male Southern elites, the blues epistemology centers those on the margins. 
Little Lizard epistemology upends the dominant story of plantation owners and bourbon Democrats as the singular producers of Southern spaces and places. By contrast, Woods' approach demonstrates the agency and power generated by political mobilization and organizing from below. It is from this epistemology that we frame the transformation of Southern political economies through the lens of racial capitalism. Now, when we say racial capitalism, we simply mean the use of racial categories, racism, and white supremacy to structure, legitimate, and sustain the production and flow of capital. The transformation of racial capitalism in the South and its racial capitalist regimes was not just done to black people. Black people were actively transforming Southern space in the Southern region. Alongside other influential strands of the black radical tradition, which includes the work of Cedric Robinson, Robin D.G. Kelly, Zora Neale Hurston, W.E.V. Du Bois, and Ida B. Wells, Woods's Blues epistemology gives us a framework for better understanding the historical reality of the transformation and ongoing production of space in the contemporary moment. As Clyde Woods himself writes, quote, The Blues tradition articulated a highly geographical critique of the event that should encourage us to focus on the visions promoted by the dispossessed. These visions promoted by the dispossessed demonstrate the inherent spatiality of justice and liberation. These spatially just visions can produce new and radical epistemologies or new ways of knowing. The themes of dispossession and the visions of the dispossessed, especially as understood through the blues, are what this episode is all about. In Development Drowned and Reborn, was his second book, he extends his previous work by engaging with long histories of spatial marginalization or the intentional exclusion and devaluation of people and places on the black geographies of New Orleans. He shows the continuities between the economic violence of plantations and so-called free market reforms that followed. Woods is critical of the idea that Hurricane Katrina was somehow a natural disaster. Departing from this view, his writing puts Katrina in historical context by discussing the equally devastating flood of 1927. He writes, Blacks in search of housing lived along the Batchers, riverbanks, and in the bayous without flood protection or ownership. Although storms and floods regularly destroyed these settlements, the fate of the inhabitants was of little concern to city leaders. For a thousand of years, levees have been broken to save areas controlled by the powerful. The politics surrounding death by submersion in New Orleans stretches back at least three centuries. In short, Woods teaches us how and why these patterns of spatial coercion, marginalization, and resistance are repeated throughout black geographies over time and space. As we were listening back to the CBC discussion, we started to think a lot about the patterns of oppression and resistance. For example, they are evident in the story of the construction of Interstate 10 in the Treme neighborhood of New Orleans, which you're going to hear a bit about on this episode. So, now that you know a bit more about Clyde Woods' work, let's talk about what we're going to hear in this episode. Alongside segments of the Community Book Center panel, Brian and I are going to talk about the role that urban planners play manipulating and interfering with liberatory presence and futures. We're also going to explore what the history of the Treme neighborhood tells us about Black geographies, displacement, and the transformation of space. But before we get started, a quick note on the sound and feel of this episode. As we talked about in episode zero, Antipod Sound Collective spans many states and nations, and we're often recording at different places and times. In fact, the work of producing and recording this episode took place in two countries, seven cities, and over the course of many months. The texture of the recording sometimes shifts dramatically with different speakers, as you'll hear. In short, you can tell when we're moving around. We feel that this, too, is a soundscape of radical geography. 
varied, richly textured, and sometimes dissonant. That is what learning out loud together sounds like. So we hope you enjoy this episode, bumps, clicks, and all. Let's get started. You are listening to Antipod, a radical podcast of geography. way to start this off, Akira, is for me to ask you what resonates to you and your work about the work and life of Clyde Woods? Well, what resonates to me is, yeah, blues of epistemology, of course, thinking about resistance as sort of a way to be in the space, actively fighting and grappling with the space and understanding shifting power dynamics. Like that's what I think of when I think of Clyde Woods, that there's great possibility in what you can do with space and place. And so often in my field in particular, in urban planning, I look at affordable housing and low-income communities and cities. So much of my field and the policy that comes from it is obsessed with getting people out of these communities, getting them away from certain areas. And we've seen that in urban planning since the birth of the discipline. So I like the idea of people creating spaces that don't look conventional, creating spaces of resistance, like right in the face uh, spaces of power. So that's what I take from Clyde's work. And some of that came out in this in this panel. Yeah. I remember you mentioned to me that Anna Brand's intervention about the pedagogy and methodology of planning and resistance was, was really spoke to you. Could you talk a bit about that and why that was? Yeah, thinking about what Anna said, like really forcing planning students to come to terms with the racism in the field, calling that out. Planners live for the now and the future. Planning is about visioning. It's about grand encapsulating plans that even if it's said to be diverse, like a fairly homogenous city because it's a city under one sort of mode. And that mode is usually growth, it's usually vitality, sustainability, whatever it is. And it comes often at the displacement or marginalization of vulnerable communities, communities that are not conforming to growth in a traditional capitalist way, right? So new and different economies, underground economies, informal economies, they don't really fit into the planning discipline very well. So I think It resonated with me because that's what I get with my own students. I teach on like race, space, and poverty. I teach qualitative methods. And so I teach students how to engage with the city in a respectful way, in a way that understands what the field has done to these types of communities. Planners, particularly graduate planning students at like a R1 University in the United States, think that they have the answers at like the age of 24. They have a plan, it hasn't been implemented yet, and they're like ready to take on the world. And there's just this refusal to engage with the knowledge of the communities that are already there, right? Like, oh, I know what to do, I know what's best for you. And that's what our field trains them to do. 
you're given all of these tools where you can look at any neighborhood, any place, and apply these metrics to it to see a certain type of city. And that there's just a natural resistance to that because of what's happened historically. I call them overplanned and underimplemented communities. People come in and shower them with plans and grand visions and renderings that don't reflect anything that's happened there historically that doesn't acknowledge. And there's no reparations there. There's no effort to repair the trauma that planners have historically borne on these communities. Well, why don't we go ahead and play that clip from Hannah Brand. Now I'm in a landscape architecture program, which is its own sort of particular thing for me to move into from urban planning. And, you know, so I teach students who, um, I think Shana's right that they are, they do a lot of ahistorical framing of what the problem is, right, in their work in urban planning and their lack of engagement with humans, their, particularly in design. <laughs> I'm really struggling with that right now. So I think, like, what do I bring into the work of teaching them to design different futures, right? They're all, planning is, and design are all about sort of the futurity of space, right? How do, you, how do you actually step back and say, you need a deeper history, you need, a, you need this politicized, you need to center other voices from the beginning of where you start, right? So, you know, I, I mean, I have landscape students reading Clyde Woods, <laughs> um, you know, and I make them sit through it or I make them read Catherine McKittrick or Bell Hooks, like all these folks that, because I want that to be the, the way they center how they think. And then from that moment of how they then engage with the work of policy or planning or space, right? Um, and I think that you know, one of the things that struck me at, you know, this conference this past week was a, a panel on abolition ecologies. Mm -hmm. And this moment, I think Catherine McKittrick said that, you know, that part of this is like being in the struggle, right? And so I think of that in my praxis of teaching as like forcing students to be in the moment of struggle. Mm -hmm. Like you actually, you need to be in that moment because you're deciding things, you're making decisions, right? Um, and then I tell them to actually go talk to human beings. What she talks about is the lack of engagement with humans, particularly in design, a, a planning for a future that keeps perpetuating things of the past. So it's a, a historical framing is what mm. she calls it. You know, it's basically the colorblind approach. Like we're kind of past racism, we're past depression, we're past this. It's all about class. Let's just get a bunch of diverse people in community and that's it. And so... Anna Brand and, and quite a few women and people of color planning teachers have come together and started bringing in Black women and Black Southern scholars as primary planning texts, mm -hmm. like understanding how to build community, understanding how to organize, understanding resistance and the historical struggles that are not covered in planning classes. And she also elaborates a second clip a little later where she talks about naming the racism of her discipline, understanding that this is something that everyone takes for granted, but it really does have to be acknowledged and explicated, particularly about the guiding role of planners in maintaining this residential, economic, and social segregation we have in cities today. Okay, let's listen to that now. The academic world is a really weird world to be in, but I'm also in a discipline that doesn't name its own 
white supremacism as like an ongoing and very present practice. So I think of like in my own work as like naming the racism of my discipline as very central in how I frame my research or how I frame what I try to write. Um, and you know, I, I think of that in terms of my writing and I think of that in terms of the methodologies that I try to use. So, and that's a piece I'm really struggling with right now. I remember there was, when I was here, it was like right after Katrina, there's an activist from Treme who said, you know, we know this shit, but then we have to prove it in your language or your regression methodology, like positivist <laughs> crap. So it's like, how do, you, how do you prove the white supremacism without using the tools of white supremacism. And that's just kind of where I'm struggling. Um, but I go back to Clyde Woods to center in how to think about that as a possibility. I appreciate the way that Anna Brand discusses that challenge, the need to prove white supremacism without using the tools of white supremacy. Clyde Woods addresses this directly in his work. In an article entitled Life After Death, which was published in The Professional Geographer in 2002, he points out that Time and time again, scholars diagnose the supposed demise and destruction of black people and black communities, which amounts to pushing a narrative of inevitable death in their writing and methods. Woods asks the question, quote, does our research in any way reflect the experiences, viewpoints, and needs of the residents of these dying communities? On the other hand, is the patient really dead? What role are scholars playing in this social triage? Akira, can I ask you, as somebody who is engaged in planning in the planning world and it comes to geography in some ways through a position in planning. Is there a lot of pushback against the drive to center the needs of communities, to center planning for people and by people, the sort of yeah. blues planning agenda, if we could call it that? Yeah, um, that's funny because it's planning is interesting and maybe geography kind of experiences this sometimes but planning schools are usually in policy schools or they're in design schools so depending on where your planning school is located quite literally shapes your worldview so i got my phd at rutgers with people who had studied geography have phds in geography and it was in a policy school so it's very much thinking of not just the application and implementation of a plan, how that was going to perpetuate itself, usually through policy. How will we evaluate this? How are we going to build legislation around this and actually enact it? Planning and design schools feel much more centered around the design aspect, around the architect, um, around the vision and the rendering and the image. And so that's a much different way where the idea of engaging with the community is something that just is seen muddy the vision, right? It's something that slows down the process. And this is an absolute extreme that every planning school, planning department in a design school, or every planning department in a policy school is going to have the same issue. But that's sort of the difference I personally have noticed. So I didn't think that there was a lot of resistance to the inclusion of diverse voices and bottled up grassroots approach to planning and planning processes when I was in a policy school, but in a design school, it is very much not that at all. <laughs> and it's interesting, I've dealt with a lot of sort of radical architects and architects that are feminists and Marxists and, and do appreciate that bottom-up approach, but they're pretty rare in their field. That's not how architects are, are trained. That's not how 
architecture's practice. It's very singular. It's very visionary. It's very much around sort of like a charismatic leader. So there, there are a lot of egotistical issues that make it difficult to engage with communities writ large in that way. Wow. I had never thought of it that way of, as in, in terms of the the location, the actual situation of the planning school and the, and the yeah. histories and struggles that create that place, uh, fundamentally shaping yeah. the planning departments themselves. Turn the music up in the headphones. My brother. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. And this might be my last day, my last song, dog. I'm paranoid, I've been paranoid for too long, dog. And if we fight, I might just let you in on purpose, dog. Cause it ain't worth me having a funeral service, dog. I'm from a city where them uptown Negroes live in Thailand. And the witnesses stay silent. Cause any night's gunshots can sing them a lullaby. And these dudes ain't concerned about making another mother cry, dude. They shot up a second line on Mother's Day. All we can do is eat, live, and pray. That we don't end up in no bitch of rabbits in the town picking you. Any day could be your last, but in this city, that day could be soon. Let's go. One of the things that clearly stood out for all of us as we were reflecting on Development Drowned and Reborn and this panel was the centrality of dispossession in Clyde Woods' work and the history mm -hmm. of New Orleans. And I know that this is a fundamental theme in your work, but both dispossession itself and how it is contested, potentially mm -hmm. supplanted by other, other models of development. Was there anything in this panel that particularly stood out to you as somebody who does focus on gentrification and dispossession and displacement? Yeah, and we'll play the clip of Khalil Shaheed talking about trauma that is built into the environment and the struggle and resistance that's built physically into the built environment. So thinking about Treme and the French Quarter and the Seventh Ward and the construction during urban renewal of the I-10 overpass right over Claiborne Avenue decimated all of this vital black belt. So to experience that trauma of a thriving neighborhood, cleared, destroyed, and then forced into this environmentally racist new environment, it, it's interesting to contrast that to the resistance to tear down that overpass. And it's two sides of the same coin that, again, for better or worse, whatever the outcome of these processes are, whether it's putting you in an environmentally racist and environmentally unjust space to one that is possibly more sustainable with cleaner air, less pollution and congestion, it doesn't matter because it's still an act of dispossession. It's still an act of taking land, space, control, power from a very vulnerable and marginalized population for this idea of a greater good. Okay, now, now that these areas are gentrifying, the overpass is an eyesore and we no longer want it here. Again, it's that failure to understand the history of the space and, and thinking about what it means for communities that 
saw their local businesses cleared away, that saw their friends and family and churches and social institutions move away because of the construction of the overpass, that saw white businesses and populations and families leaving the downtown core to go out and work in the suburbs and put jobs out in the suburbs. And then to see the demolition and destruction that came from Katrina to the same area, to see it being rebuilt and to see it slowly and insidiously gentrify until once again we come to the state of the overpass and the idea of creating a new community, but a community that has been dispossessed and displaced. And this is unfortunately not a story unique to New Orleans. It's a story that you can tell in Newark. It's a story you can tell in Baltimore. It's a story you can tell in Atlanta. It's a story you can tell in Minneapolis. You can tell it in LA. You can tell it in New York. You can tell it anywhere where there's been this level of what Larry Vale calls twice clear communities. This idea of trauma that's revisited among communities and they, they never have a say either because they had no power or because they're just not there. That's definitely a piece that really resonated with me. We mistakenly think that uh, that gentrification is an argument over affordable housing, that the solution to gentrification is, is, is affordable housing. Right. Gentrification is a, is a development model. Yes, right. Every city on the planet, they have, cities don't really have another model. There's not another option. Cities are told you either gentrify or you stagnate. Um, and the and the ability to apply that model is going to be different by city. It's going to be different within the regions of the city, which is why gentrification is slower in certain parts of the city than it is in other parts of the cities. Gentrification happens much more rapidly, much more intensively in certain cities than it does in, in other cities. Some cities, Flint, Michigan, they may not be able to apply their gentrification model. And, 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 and then so for a city like Flint, Michigan, what then are they supposed to do? How do they fund an adequate water system when, when they can't use a, the gentrification model to grow an urban economy, all right? And so when, and so when, the, when the people of Treme are resisting you know, the tearing down of that I-10, they're resisting that development model and saying we have to find some some other alternative. We don't know what it is. It's not it's not necessarily our responsibility to do it, but we're not going to let you profiteer off of and you know using our misery, using our history against us. You know to, to then come in and profiteer and, and eventually to, to push us out to the extent that you know folks have already been pushed out of Trinidad. So that being said, you know the the the, the use of geography and space, uh, you know to produce racialized spaces, you know, both regionally, you know, but also in cities, that's also a part of that development model where you really seeing this kind of rubber band effect between, between quote unquote black spaces and non-black spaces where the value of non-black spaces are really valuable simply because they're not black spaces, mm -hmm. um, you know, because, you know, they're, you, you know, what, what has been created through the, through the racialization of spaces <clears throat> is a property value that is applied to white identity. What stood out to you here, Akira? I think Khalil's piece, he really made a good point between different development models. You have resistance as a development model and you have gentrification as a development model. And this idea that in both instances, you are seeing the 
privileging of, of capital and anti-Black forces coalescing around dispossessing and displacing vulnerable communities that are in the path of growth. And so the idea that these communities are twice cleared, but in very different ways, uh, one, because they just simply don't have a voice, and two, and the second time, because they're simply not there, I think is something that really resonates with me and connects that with me from Khalil's part. Shana Griffin allows us to think through what this is doing as a development model. What's happening here? How this relates to the really rich tradition of resistance and and life in New Orleans. I, I really liked her point because she really complicates what we think about as resistance and this idea that sometimes people go against their own self-interest, which is really apt in this particular political moment. Mm. But I, I really, really liked what she said about those who resisted the, the teardown of the highway overpass. The blues epistemologies, what Clyde teaches us, it's like we need to re-examine this, look at it deeply close, yeah. like there are some hidden uh, codes or layers that yeah. we're not seeing. Yeah. So for me, when I think about the community uh, refusing to s- support the removal, it means that the way I interpret it is that they're saying, we are saying, if you remove this highway, this is a this ex- this is a marker that we exist. Yeah. So the removal of this says that we don't exist, right? And so it's like they're fighting to keep up these structures um, that has created so much harm and violence and disruption, but it's one of the few things that they can hold on to as a reminder to the rest of the world that they exist. Hey, it's a big difference between that and this. Man, they talk it, but we walk it. You feel me? Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. This my spoke a revolution with you. Man, I might spoke a revolution with you. Man, I might spoke a revolution with you. Man, they be talking revolution. I be walking revolution. This my spoke a revolution with you. They balk. We march. 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 So to return to the way you're engaging with this panel and with Clyde Woods and his work as somebody who is, I think, far more connected to the practices of the top-down optics of developing space from the realm of the, the powerful city planner and the architect, what specifically do you gather from Clyde Woods' work? In what ways does Clyde's work enliven your understandings of processes of gentrification and displacement and contestation for that matter? His work for me, it, it's all about noticing those patterns over time and space. I, I love the idea, and love is probably like not a good word to use here, but I appreciate the theoretical and analytical framework of thinking through patterns of racialization or othering and dispossession and displacement and renewal and rebirth and the idea that twice cleared communities are really thrice and four times cleared communities if we take it back to indigenous groups, Mm. slums, and and then African-Americans and African-Americans and Latinos or Southeast Asian immigrants who 
are now being gentrified out of their own ethnic enclaves. For so long, we thought that displacement was something that just sort of happened in state-formed and capital-formed ghettos, and we understand that it can also happen in other places, in rural places, in suburban places, places that themselves were once areas of difference or separation. So Clyde's work really puts that his methods of understanding land and development over time and space are invaluable to me and allow me to see how systemic both that change is, but also how systemic resistance can be and how that kind of can look very similar across time and space as well. And how we can learn and benefit from that. That's a really good point and a really good way, I think, of thinking through the power and the imperative of a lot of Clyde Woods's work, not not seeing these historical processes as disconnected from the mm-hmm. present day, but how they have created the conditions of possibility for the present day, both in terms of, you know, these actual top down and power serving processes of displacement and enclosure and gentrification, but also the rich traditions and cultural underpinnings of resisting these processes and enacting alternatives to these processes. So mm-hmm. when when we first started this segment, you said that it feels weird to academize, ac- academicize, whatever the term is. Um, <laughs> this panel, I made it up. <laughs> and Clyde Clyde Woods's work, and and I agree that that is the case. But at the same time, in relation to just hearing the folks in this panel and you talk about the relevance of Clyde Woods's work to thinking through displacement and gentrification. It's also really clear that if you are actually engaging with Clyde Woods' work, then academic exercise is not for the sake of academic production. Yeah, yeah. That's not where the shit is happening. Yeah, and you can tell, I mean, you hear it in the panel, the, the personal stories and the love that activists and academics alike had for Clyde it really just shows mm. you again like he like the possibilities of what you can do with the work like it doesn't like you say have to be for the sake of academic production at all this brings us to the end of our first full episode of Antipod As we were in the final stages of producing this episode, Hurricane Barry was heading towards the coast of southern Louisiana. For a couple days, it looked like a worst-case scenario. Due to major rainfall throughout the Mississippi River watershed, the river was at near-record levels, and Barry was heading in the direction of the mouth of the Mississippi River and New Orleans. Fortunately, the most dire outcomes did not come to pass. Barry's storm surge was not as high as expected, and his path shifted westwards, away from New Orleans. But other storms will come. Storms like Barry and Katrina are not just natural disasters. As Clyde Woods' work teaches us, there is a profoundly human dimension to storms like this. Even so, Woods is not focused on documenting the violence of racism just for the sake of cataloging it. His work is instead guided by the hope and promise of a more equitable, just human world. Worlds that are already being enacted every day. As Woods wrote in the conclusion of Development Drowned and Reborn, Katrina revealed a crossroad of regional, national, and global significance. It has been argued that there is no time for imagining a new world when communities lay shattered. However, something greater than pity and charity are demanded. The historic and epic struggle of African-American communities in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama to create a world based on social, economic, and cultural justice 
must be the cornerstone of the third reconstruction. We're still at that crossroads, and the imperative and urgency of reconstructing a more just world is as great as it has ever been. In the next episode, we'll look at the blues epistemology, which Clad Woods understood as central to imagining and enacting that necessary reconstruction. This episode was hosted by Brian Williams and Akira Drake Rodriguez, edited by KT Bender and Brian Williams, and produced by KT Bender, Allison Guess, Alex Moulton, DP, Akira Drake Rodriguez, and Brian Williams. This episode featured music by D1 and Fennec. Our theme music is It's Not Jazz by Trunks. We would like to thank the Antipode Foundation for their generous funding and support of this project. We'd also like to thank Sonny Patterson, Suzanne J. Mobley, Jordan Camp, Shana Griffin, and Khalil Shaid for their inspiration, as well as Theo Hilton and Matt Sakakini for facilitating the Community Book Center panel. You can find links to the Community Book Center and to the websites of the people and organizations featured in this episode in our show notes. Finally, thank you to Clyde Woods, whose work and memory lives on. Rest in power.